in the CTO studio today, you're going to get a Web3 conversation, but it's going to be CTO style. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. I'm in a very unusual spot with respect to this stuff in the sense that I have been in this world for on the order of a year now. I've done lots and lots of trading, over 10 million trades in crypto by now, multiple millions of dollars moved around. And yet I'm still fundamentally skeptical about a lot of things that I see. And so I, I inhabit this weird world. <laughs> My name is Augustine. I, I run Esalen Research, which is a, a tech consulting company. I used to be a trader on Wall Street and in London, quant trader. And like I said, I think I inhabit two very strange worlds sometimes. Yeah, my name is Anup. I run a software development company called Hypertrends Global Inc. based out of San Diego. And I am transitioning on to an events ticketing company, which I had originally founded about three years ago. And then COVID brought it down. And so we're spinning the wheels back up. And my interest is pretty much that our main promise, even three years ago, was that we would uh, do a lot of the Web3 style event ticketing. My name is Michael Bastos. For the last three years, I've been working in the federal space and also working on crypto, high frequency trading stuff in my free time. And about a month ago, I decided to basically leave my Pentagon work and, and do full-time crypto HFT basically, and have been re also getting into smart contract writing, you know, the solidity, all of that kind of stuff. So it's been really an exciting paradigm shift per se in technology space. My theory about the hype and excitement is the same as it was about blockchain, which is, I think back in the day when TCPIP was being invented, it was being done inside a scientific community that wasn't public. You weren't tweeting all your postulations and your ideas. And so I just think that we have insight into the research being done out in the public, which makes it seem a lot more noisy and less credible. But we're all part of the research and we're all part of the what ifs and we're all part of the innovative thinking. And so I actually think it's awesome that there's excitement around it. And all these scenarios are being concocted and startups are being created and sometimes wild statements are being made. I just think that's a good thing. And from my, my perspective, Etienne, you hit it right there with TCPIP. I've always said that in the last two or three years, we're building like the foundation, the protocols, and we're still not at a point where we were not, at least until two years ago, where we were at a point where we're seeing the applications on those different protocols. So when we were working three years ago, for instance, it was still hard and expensive to run transactions. A, a ticket, you know, that costs about $250 would probably have a transaction fee associated with it. Creating or executing the smart contracts were, were expensive. And now with a whole different set of technologies such as lightning networks and things like that or off-chain or side-chain technologies that are coming up, it's become very easy to perform transactions. So there is a progression and it's heading in the right direction. And just like Augustine, I'm very skeptical. I don't want to, you know, put both feet in yet, but I'm very interested and I'm very happy that people are doing this in public for the first time because you are able to 
C source code of the smart contracts, for example. You are able to evaluate the actual usage of different networks and really see what is going on under the hood. And I think that is phenomenal. So it's, there are scammers and they get away with a lot because people are not paying attention. But if you pay attention, you can actually see there's some real value being created. And I think that's the part that I really appreciate because never before have we done something at such a large scale. We're talking about identities. We're talking about transactions. We're talking about all sorts of different protocols that are being created for governance and autonomous governance, like cities could potentially run on this. So the experiment is so huge and it is all public. And so if you're a student and a learner, I think it's one of the best times to dive into this. I remember re- you know, watching Steve Gibson's uh, Security Now episode back in 2011 when he was talking about the, the concepts behind Bitcoin and everything else. I loved it even back then. About four years ago, I think it was uh, Hasib Qureshi came out with like a really amazing mini cryptocurrency Ruby video where he basically explained how to build a basic, you know, how basic blockchains work and everything else. And I got really excited around with that. And then for me, the, the real sort of trigger moment where it's, I need to focus on this. This is, in my mind, the future that I want to be working in was with the Polkadot conference. Uh, that was just eye-opening in terms of the technology going from basic building blocks to fully integrated, fully functional. It literally, like, I've been in tech since the 90s, even as a teenager, and there was a whole slew of language that I had to learn that I had just been missing. I didn't know was there. Everything from proof of work to proof of stake, to you, you name it, there was just a whole other world there that I had just been blind to. And so... After the Polkadot conference a couple of months back, I dug into it a, a lot and started building all my own tooling, so working on my own stuff. Uh, at a fundamental level, I enjoy you know writing smart contracts. I enjoy the, the tech beside it, and I definitely see a huge future as it relates to 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 what is possible. I think the problem with crypto right now is too much of a focus on the money making side of it, Correct. not enough focus on the creativity side. In the end, this is going to have mass adoption if it solves somebody's problem. And so the question is, what are those problems that, that people need solving? And obviously, the other side of it is at what cost, right? So having uh, a trustless intermediaries, having identities federated, all these things are, are desirable. And it's just a question of at what cost. I think the thing, that, the thing I'm fond of saying is that late stage capitalism is founded on the idea that any, people will trade anything off for convenience. And so right now, like there's no convenience to be traded off. And so I think the effort of all these groups is going to be around making it more convenient for the average person to solve problems they actually care about. So can I start with uh, a question that's been bugging me a little bit? And that is this, the concept of the blockchain. If we consider the blockchain as the immutable ledger that gets decentrally managed is it is my app my autonomy my identity my whatever is it just a function of whichever blockchain i'm on and therefore it all degrades to which community blockchain is being used if you think about the blockchain for bitcoin it has certain properties and it's being mined a certain way but then can't I just create my own little blockchain and say, now I created that blockchain or I am the admin of that repo or isn't it just parallel universes that 
is defined by this blockchain backbone? I think maybe three years ago, you could have said made an argument like that. But Michael mentioned Pol- Polkadot, and there's plenty of other sort of L0, what are known as L0 ideas around bringing chains together. And I think that, again, very active area of, of investigation. Maybe Michael can tell us more about what, what he's seen, but it doesn't seem crazy to me at all that that the incentives around building these bridges are there. And people are going to build them. And if these bridges work, then it's not going to be this balkanized world. We're going to live in this sort of multi-chain world and you'll be able to pick the chain for the application that you want. And it's important to note that, the, the like he said, the, sep- the separation has always existed. Bitcoin is probably the one example that I wouldn't use necessarily in the case of this sort of stuff, smart contracting and so forth, because it, it lives in its own, it sort of lives in its own space. It has its own moves. It has its own level of immutability in terms of its code. Uh, Ethereum can be changed. Other platforms can be changed. Bitcoin can never be changed per se. It can be forked, but not changed in its true light. But I think the big thing is the operability is there right now. Look at Solidity in terms of what you can do. I can build an app that works both on the Ethereum side as well as on the Solana side. And, and, and so the interoperability of these chains and the interoperability of being able to do stuff across multiple chains or, or build out tokens across multiple chains is there. It's, it already exists and it's in play. And so I don't think you're going to have to necessarily worry about being stuck to one ecosystem or another, per se. If, that, if we're using the, the concept of the basic blockchain as an ecosystem, I don't think you, you need to feel stuck in an ecosystem. Cardano just launched their, their smart contracts piece. So the industry as a whole is opening up to, to interoperability and working within that space. The example that I always give people is you think of, I've been an app developer for many years, right? And you think of being an app developer and you're building an app on top of existing infrastructure. And that's the same note here. You, you, when you're talking about smart contracts, when you're talking about uh, Solidity, when you're talking about all these tooling, this is like app development. There's people working on lower levels, working on like a Polkadot framework or, or, or these other systems that are separate from the actual app development piece. And so when you think of it that way, the app developers are going to be able to, for the most part, work across the different paradigms, work across the different frameworks. So the interoperability between blockchains is a thing. Yes. So if I was to visualize that, am I seeing this big, huge ass, monstrous snake in the sky that uh, has multiple? I would tell you it's a ring, but whatever. Different L, different L zero <laughs> efforts will tell you different things. The, the topology, the question of what is the right topology, is still an open question. But people are experimenting for sure. There's definitely people trying to make their thing the thing. Polkadot, I think it was Polkadot that registered the Web three foundation and all this other stuff making it seem like they were the center of the world when it came to Web3. And that's just not the case. That's just not true. So you're going to see a lot of that, a lot of that sort of confusion as different companies or different organizations within this ecosystem try to vie for what is essentially the Google of that space. But but that just makes me so sad because I feel like that's just another centralized model, isn't it? I think the argument is it's not, right? I think with what Anoop was saying is with, with, uh, autonomous organizations, certainly there's a culture. We'll see how long it lasts, but there's the culture difference between, we'll say, traditional finance, which is a thing that I know a decent amount about, and in crypto. And then also, we'll say, the SaaS world in crypto. These are very different feeling cultures. There is definitely this camaraderie around, let's build this thing together. How long that lasts is unknown, but I think people at least have the chance to vote with their feet. 
right? Like they can be part of DAOs that they think are run well. Like you can put your money where your mouth is in a way that makes a difference in the way that's meaningful, as opposed to I'm going to Google because everybody else is there too, or Facebook or whatever. I think it, there is a fundamental difference there. Whether it ends up being significant, and again, time will tell, but there's an attempt at doing something much more collective and collaborative. A lot of the tech, a lot of the the reasoning behind the stuff came from the, the cipher books of, yeah. of the late night. And those, a lot of those circles, there was a lot of libertarianism. There was a lot of, I'm not going to trust you. You're not going to trust me. This belief that we don't trust government organizations. We don't want to trust centralization spewed into the technology. And, and if anybody has ever, if you guys ever had, had a chance, uh, go read uh, the Bitcoin white paper. Like, it's a few pages long. You know, right? It's not that long. It's not yeah. that complicated. But it's a great sort of breakdown in terms of, of mindset, in terms of the thought process behind, hey, we want to make sure that we build something that is that is decentralized and can never be centralized. It can never be. It, it, the tooling and the things that we're going to put into play, both in terms of the blockchain, which is separate from a lot of the, like the real gist behind that paper isn't necessarily the blockchain. That's probably one of the least important things up until that point, because that concept had already existed. It was really the trust vector, right? Like how people trust, the, the, how, how, the, how are you going to be able to trust the, the chains that are coming in? How are you going to be able to trust between two individual peers? You know, this idea that the, that the, that the you know, because building the chain costs money, because it costs energy, because it, it costs something, then a bad actor isn't ever going to be able to attack the system, to attack, you know, to build their own subsequent chain per se. And, and the chain with the largest number of proofs, meaning that the, the longest chain wins every time, essentially, were fundamental concepts within not just Bitcoin, but within the distributed world uh, that have changed. That's why I say, like, when I talk about this stuff, I, yeah, I trade on the altcoins. I, I, I trade a couple hundred altcoins in my systems on a, on a, given, on a given, you know, month or whatever the case is. But for the most part, the, the fundamentals are was really interesting. The fundamentals of a bad actor, a bad actor might have enough computing power to to build out a, a separate chain, but they're never going to have the computing power to to of the entire network. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how many AWS Lambda functions they buy, they won't be able to out process this entire network of miners that are both mining for the coin, but also doing the proof of work, but also putting in like doing the actual transactional stuff. And so the, of this ecosystem exists from a physical level. The more miners there are, the more transactional people are with computing power doing the transactional work for all of these chains, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, the, the, the more safer and decentralized the technology becomes because no single bad actor, no single state government, I don't care who you are, is going to be able to take this on. And so do your concern about, you know, what is this bad because of centralization? Trust me, like, like if you, like the industry is, has that libertarian ethos built in within it and it's doing at least the majority of the good, of what I would call the good projects, uh, have that ethos in them and, and have that focus in them going all the way back to the sort of the cypherpunk mentality of the nineties. And so a lot of this stuff it, isn't ever going to be able to be centralized. Like, you know, you're listening right now to, I don't know if you guys are watching any of the any of the, the hearings in Congress that are happening right now for both crypto, for stable coin, for all these other different stuff. And, and it's just really interesting to see the question of like, how do we centralize this? And them having to answer, give the answer, you can't. <laughs> like you can maybe regulate stable coins and you can maybe regulate that part of the industry. But for the most part, the rest of the industry is going to do what it's going to do. And there is no government on earth that can potentially stop them. 
sort of I, doing I'm going to disagree with you, Michael, here. Okay, okay. Like, go for it. Go for it. Like, in terms of computing power, in terms of hash power, it is well within the reach within the reach of any reasonable nation state to destroy all of these coins, all these chains. Like it's, it costs you like on the order of, few, of a few tens of millions of dollars and access to network sort of infrastructure and that sort of thing. The hope is obviously that it gets big enough such that risk is gone, but it's not like it's zero today. If China wanted to destroy all of this, they just could. If, United, if the yeah. NSA wanted to destroy all this, they just could. Yep. Yep. So we're still early is the thing that I would say. Yeah. And there are some interesting stories that I've heard. For example, there was a blockchain called VeChain, VE Chain in China. And it, it was the only reason it was allowed to flourish is because they had tie-ins with the government. And so China can also stop certain blockchains from progressing and certain people from, even if they may have better blockchains, block them from going public or flourishing. So the Chinese government actually, you know, what I've heard is actually approved WeChain to go launch at, at a scale at which they are right now. And they're using WeChain for a lot of things, including counterfeit product detection, things of that nature. So I know, Michael, majority of the stuff that you're saying, absolutely true. And But I also feel that geopolitics is right now, if they want it, to stop Ethereum, for example, right now, they could. They may not look really good in the eyes of the general populace, but I think they still could. At this moment, they could, yeah. Yeah, and it, I think it's important caveat to say that not all chains are built alike, right? Not all technology is the same. Not all technology is as secure, right? There's plenty of stories of some poorly coded tokens, poorly coded systems that have lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Dollars, yeah. Uh, because of that. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that's really interesting from at least the, the, the technical perspective is, you know, we're talking to CTOs here, we're talking to technical folks, is like, it's a very different paradigm shift in terms of our focus on software development. So I'm used to developing software and, and, and doing review and getting it out there, getting it into public and getting stuff into production. The, the joke that I always make is if it's not in production, it didn't exist kind of thing, right? And, and, this is a very different paradigm. This is when you're writing a smart contract, you have to make sure you have to do audits. You have to make sure that it is a hundred percent good because the risks of you getting a single thing wrong and losing a boatload of money because of it are real. Like, like, like we see those, like you see that in, in the number of, of organizations that, that lose hundreds of millions of dollars because of their, because there's a bug in their smart contracts or whatever the case is, the auditing companies involved with those things basically rubber stamped the code base that they push out and that sort of stuff. And so, and so there is definitely a different paradigm shift in terms of having to do all of the security checks, all of the rework ahead of time before you launch, launch something like that into the actual ecosystem. Yeah. And that's where it becomes a very expensive proposition. So when we were doing our development, we had a very simple smart contract that essentially said, hey, we want to list all the ticket sellers. And, and the affiliates that we are allowing people to buy tickets from on the blockchain. And then you could just scan a QR code and you would be able to see, hence bringing transparency into the system. And just something as simple as that, just writing that contract. If the contract part wasn't that difficult, but the amount of questions that were raised around security, what if we get hacked? And what if all the scenarios, the auditing company was, I think charging us about $130,000 to just 
Yeah, expensive. Yeah, and this is three years ago. I'm sure prices have gone. The number is way higher now, dude. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. There well, are fewer people in the market doing this. Like, there's a business that is worth getting into if anybody's interested. This is it for someone who's doing this as a self-funded initiative. We were like, there's no way we're going to do this. And then we wanted to create, the company was called Ticket Blocks at the time. And we wanted to create our own wallet for the blockchain so that you could essentially load up your wallet and then you could buy tickets using the wallet. You could buy NFTs for artists using the same concept. And even the wallet technology, just getting the coin built, rubber stamp, the legal around that came to about $250,000. And we were like, we can't just spend two fifty grand on legal, you know? Yeah, I think that's one thing that's probably changed. If not changing, then certainly changed. Like probably three years ago, that was your only choice. Yeah. But now you have a variety of options available to public chains where you can piggyback on all of the infrastructure that exists already. Like just as a very straightforward example, right? If you were to rebuild all that in something like Solana, where, where transactions are very cheap, then there's a whole bunch of infrastructure that you're no longer responsible for. And so I think that sort of makes the barrier to entry much lower than it has been in the past. But I think, again, it's worth asking the question, what is fundamentally the value that you gain from this? Correct. Um, yeah. Because it's it's not straightforward to, to make that, that trade-off. Like, certainly there are what I would consider fairly clear ways in which things like NFTs would have tremendous value, like in terms of replacing things like transcripts and diplomas from your university or something, right? Like that to me is like a very clear use case for something like this. tickets to shows. I don't know, not so obvious to me. These are more ephemeral, more temporary. So again, like it's really just down to the economics of every particular activity. Yeah. I think fraud detection and just being able to find the lineage of a ticket, for example, before you buy it. I think that would be a great, there is billions of dollars lost in ticketing fraud every year. And so if you could eliminate that by putting the history of the transactions and the resale history, the price and the actors that purchased or sold it, that would be a great problem to solve. NFT tickets, for example, is another thing. It's a vanity metric, but it's a way to engage with uh, people. So for example, if 100 people out of the, the thousand that are buying a ticket get a special NFT token ticket out randomly, then suddenly you can engage with them with that NFT token for the lifetime. And then because that NFT token grants them certain access rights into the network in, with the artists, then suddenly that becomes a valuable thing. And hey, if you just want to sell it at some point, you could. And you could make money. So that's, those are the, be, the NFT for Woodstock 1969 is probably pretty valuable. If NFTs had existed then, that's probably pretty yeah. valuable yeah. NFT to continue yeah. to hold. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that we're getting there so quickly. When we were talking about NFT three and a half years ago, three years ago, everyone was looking at us like, what are you guys talking about? And now suddenly, and the world is just all about NFT. Every day, someone is launching an NFT and it's all, uh, poorly done. I, I feel that it's hyped up a lot as well. You're buying apes and people are spending millions of dollars buying apes. <laughs> it, it, it depends on the complexity of what you're trying to build, right? So NFTs are low-level complexity, supposedly high-reward sort of stuff, which is why yeah. you see them proliferating everywhere. And I think a lot of the, the people that I know in this space, and I, like I'm a 
member of Texas Blockchain Council. We do the summits here about a month or two ago and so forth. And I think a lot of the people within the space that are trying to reduce the cost, like the onboarding cost and all this other stuff, are basically saying, okay, we can't have stuff that's too complex. Like we'll speak from the perspective of we can't launch code that's too complex into these systems. And so a lot of them tend to take the, I don't know if anyone's ever used this term before, but it's almost like the micro API sense of, of smart contracts, right? Like you're, instead of building this huge, complicated smart contract that has to have a hundred grand in review, a startup, like startup can't do. Instead, you build essentially small APIs or small smart contracts that do a specific thing and do that specific thing really well. And you deploy that one smart contract, deploy another smart contract, and suddenly these deployed smart contracts that are like an ecosystem, ecosystem. themselves. And, and there's different people monetizing this stuff, this d- different things this way, right? Like if I were to build a smart contract and I were to make it public, meaning I'm, I'm putting out the public address for that smart contract, uh, I would probably, but it's something small, it's something stupid, it's something simple, whatever the case is. I might make some sort of, some sort of way to pay me for running that smart contract yourself. Make that smart contract open. But say, okay, when you transact, you know, maybe I get a 0.01% transaction yeah. and, it, and then it's our contract. Now you're talking about a, a ecosystem, ecosystem where I'm, I'm building s- small things that I can vet, that I can review, that I can go through all of the sort of logic behind and getting it out there and letting other people use it. And that's how you sidestep, you know, the complexity. It's really about how much complexity you're putting into what you're building. If you build small things that are less complex, you have less of a risk from a security perspective. And even if you have a security risk down the road, a single smart contract that is bad doesn't affect your hundreds of other smart contracts that you've already built that are good. That one could be, you can say, hey, we're no longer using that one. This is version two kind of thing. And so there's ways with that the smaller guys within the ecosystem are trying to sidestep what you described as a very big problem three years ago. Uh, and don't get me wrong. There's one, one good friend of mine is works for one of the bigger, one of the bigger, more expensive outlets within there. And he's constantly telling me we need people that can review these smart contracts because people just like to add complexity. They just like to make these things bigger and bigger than they probably should be. And so I definitely see a, a, a way for startups to, to build smaller and get their stuff out there in, in that sense. So. Of course. I mean, of course, the counter argument here is that we can't legitimately live in a world where everybody has to be a professional grade reviewer of Solidity code in order to just exist in a financial ecosystem. And certainly there's a couple of things that are challenges. I'm not saying they're insurmountable, but they're clear challenges right now. It's certainly just that thing you said, Michael, about going from V1 to V2 is in practice just an incredibly yeah, difficult it's- thing because we have this immutability is both a, a benefit and a curse in many ways. And so, yeah, like this idea of, of composability, again, like it, it's, it's, it sounds good, but then look at the log4j exploit from last week where it's in everything. And what if we find an exploit, like whatever black hat guy finds an exploit, takes everybody's money. And the thing about it is because these smart con- contracts are smart, there's no recourse. Like I can't sue anybody to get my money back. It's legitimately gone especially if we move to chains with more zero knowledge kind of uh, capabilities where you, where that provenance isn't even there. So again, these are like very deep problems, not saying they're insurmountable, but again, from a, from the average Joe's perspective, these are like really big hurdles that, that we're going to yeah. need to sort of get over. What steps should a startup that really has these dreams that they can solve this? I can write smart contracts, no problem. What steps should a startup take 
to inoculate themselves to a certain degree from these kind of exploits because a single exploit could take down the entire startup and that that would be the end of it. So how do you move or maneuver around in this crisis if something were to happen and, and still come out winning? Or how do you even think of venturing into something like this when you know that you're cash trapped? The paradigm shift that, that most seems similar is when a lot of people a couple of years back started going from object-oriented to functional, right? Worrying about state, worrying about all this stuff to suddenly you have to, you don't have to worry about state, but you have to work around state, right? You have to work around like, like having state. You're not going to have state. You're going to, you're going to have to write your code. You have to, you know, change your way of coding, change your way of thinking around state to be able to get around that. And it was hugely beneficial, right? WhatsApp was able to build an amazing thing you know, with, with 10 people that was worth billions of dollars because they went the functional route and they focused on on that sort of paradigm. And so the to your to answer your question about well, what do you do? Well, you just change how you're thinking, change how you do development, change how you get code up. Like you don't have a production deployment, period. You you deploy up to a certain point, but you prioritize and focus on smaller, smaller blocks, smaller things that you can do that could eventually get you to that end state, could eventually get to, to that end point. But you don't put all your eggs in one basket per se. And that's a fundamental change in mindset. Like you, like when I, I think of these, I, I, I jokingly, because I've been working at Lambda for so long now, AWS Lambda with all the Lambda tools that, that are out there and so forth. Like I think of smart contracts almost in the sense of Lambda, the smaller, the better. Like the, 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 the smaller I can make the smart contract and get it out that does X, that does something specific, the better it's ultimately going to be. And at the end of the day, like you're going to be able to swap bad things out for good and, and that kind of thing. But that's, it's a fundamental change in how you think now you do so, especially from what you were talking about before, where, where you can't change it afterwards. And so how do you get around that? You don't do things how you did it, just the same way that we didn't do the same things in functional that we did in object-oriented programming. You can't do the same things in, in, in this environment that you did elsewhere, basically. So can I ask a question around, and, and I think as dovetails into what Anup said about what should a startup consider, is the promise of smart contracting inside a blockchain that I can just deploy and the whole world of DevOps is now gone? Or am I still trying to apply an old paradigm to, to this? Should I not think of it this way? So I can just take my, my smart contract, which I'm worried about how you said it has to be perfect, but I can just basically throw my logic into the ether and the ghost in the machine will run it for me. Is does it take away this world of DevOps? I mean, or, inf or, or, or infrastructure, I should say, or scaling, yes. or Lambda is a is a smart contract to blockchain like Lambda is to AWS. Yes, yes, that, that's a good that's a good example. But the difference is you can update a Lambda function. But the I don't think it takes away your CI/CD process. I think it just. I think because you can still write tests, like Solidity still lets you write testing. It still lets you add to tests. So you can constantly be adding to tests to test your own function, even after it's deployed. Imagine the world where, hey, I, I have my smart contract. It's a small thing. It's a wheel or whatever. It's a lone smart contract or whatever. And I get it out there. And it's very tiny, very minuscule, very small. I can continue writing tests. And if I continue writing tests... And suddenly one of my tests breaks something or finds a vulnerability, like that's still part of the CI/CD process. That's still part of the pipeline process. And, and you run into a situation now where you can choose at that point and say, okay, 
all the wallets that I had associated with that particular smart contract, I am going to remove every dime, every cent from those associated to make sure I don't lose money because now I found my own bug to the smart contract. And I'm basically like the smart contract is no more. I'm going to move on and, and build something. There's some complexity there because if you create a smart contract that other people, other organizations, other pe- folks depend on, then you're in a lot of sounds ridiculous. You're in a lot of almost yeah, it just sounds but ridiculous. It is. It is. But, but, it's, but it's even more ridiculous, I think, because it's not just you taking the money yeah. out of your wallet. It's like all of your customers yeah. also have to like simultaneously rev to the new version. Like this is utterly yeah. insane, right? It's, 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 it reminds me of going back to when there used to be a time where you would take a piece of cardboard and you would punch a bunch of holes into it yeah, and you yeah. would send it to the basement so that they would run it. Yeah. We had to throw out the cardboard if, it, if, it, if there was an error, right? Yep. Punch cards. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe we oh, just have a, maybe the human has an innate need to go back to the womb and just be safe from the world out there be, go back to what it knows we've talked a little bit about the the, the downsides of coding in this environment right the downsides of, of writing a smart contract that has a bug and losing hundreds of billions of dollars right there is a definite downside what's the positive side what, what's the benefit that you get from immutable code from, from, from immutability the upside the selling point is that if you do your work really well and this is i jokingly tell some of the guys that, that i that i do this sort of stuff with that this is like the perfect job for the inward tented because if you do your job really well then you have essentially a very powerful system that cannot be changed this you know cannot be removed in the sense that the example that, that i give is doing a loan document right like it's a basic loan like i i am i am lending you money and you are giving me back a certain amount per month at a particular rate and everything else. Short of shenanigans, chicanery, or whatever the case is, on the part of the borrower, it's a very powerful system whereby you're issuing out, say, Ether or whatever you're issuing out, and you're getting back verbatim on on a set schedule. There's no pain point in terms of not getting paid. There's no pain point in terms of, of not getting the check at the end of the month. And you can see the power there when it comes to invoice, you know, building an invoice and, and for, for e-commerce companies and all of this sort of stuff. Like the, this is why I, I say that there's a lack of creativity in the space, really. That, that That's the only thing that's really stopping it from really blowing up the way that went to, to, to blew up is just not enough creative people, creative technical people in the space uh, to really figure out what is possible within this ecosystem. It's why you're seeing a blow up in NFTs and all these other, not, not bashing the NFT market, but it's simple. It's, it's straightforward. It's, it's, it's easy to put out there. When you're talking about adding levels of complexity on top of a system like this, like you need really technical and creative people to be able to pull that off. Yeah, I think yeah. the challenge, like I said before, the challenge with immutability is there's the upsides there. I think it's I think it's important to note that we could have that in our legal system if we wanted to. Like we could have we could structure a legal system and you know, debtor prisons used to exist in, in, in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. Like we could have a legal system where if you don't pay your debts, you go to jail. You could get we could have a legal system where you get killed. Yeah. There's nothing that fundamentally pre- prevents that as long as the government has a monopoly on violence. And so I think Chesterton's fence here is really important. Like, why does the system exist the way it does right now? I feel like that is a massive failure mode that I see a lot in crypto. Like, we're going to build this new thing and it's got some upsides, but I think there's very little thinking about why the system works the way it does, except in as much as people say, oh, it's the powerful have captured it, blah, 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 blah. Like, in the end, 
we've all kind of decided to live in this system or at least versions of the system. And I think, again, I'm not saying that innovations in this space are bad. I'm not saying innovations in this space shouldn't happen. I would like to see a little bit more like deep understanding and thought about why the system that we have now works the way it does, what benefits that are maybe not so obvious does it have so that we can replicate those benefits in a more efficient way in this new paradigm. I think that's, to me, the people who are doing this well are doing that and they're doing well as a result of doing that. Could you give me some good examples that I could look at for people who are maybe doing this really well and what Stan Augustine? I just very curious because I'm diving back into this now. And long gone, I think, are the days of the, you know, polymath network where you could have, you know, securitized tokens and all that. And the world has moved, I think, towards applications more. So just wondering if you have any good ones. I, th I think the one that comes to mind right now is MakerDAO and DAI. Mm -hmm. I, think DAI they yep. do, I think they do a really good job of trying to think carefully about all of the sort of incentive structures that they're putting together. They've really weathered a lot of downturns. I think their DAO, people probably argue about the governance, but I think on balance, the governance of that whole ecosystem is very good. It would not shock me if DAI really became the, the tether of DeFi. I think one that doesn't seem so obviously like that to me is like Olympus DAO, right? Where it's very much the sort of here's some massive annual interest you're going to collect if you come in. And this is not to say that like it's a Ponzi and you should stay away. That is not a thing I'm saying at all because this sort of like binary thing about whether something's a Ponzi or not, I think is very reductive and, and pointless in some way. But it's just what does the governance look like that is and what are the incentive structures they're trying to set up uh, long-term, I think is the thing to think about. So maybe a little bit abstract, but at least a couple of examples to think about. Cool. I, I love making and I'd love to get Michael's take on this because I could be totally off. <laughs> no, I think I, I enjoyed when you mentioned like the birth pains of, of Tether and all, of what was going on. And you mentioned that I like that was the first time I'd heard that sort of analysis. And I thought it was really well articulated and well said. I have stayed out of the, the staple coin side of the house and I'm mostly in the more volatile you know, altcoin side. And I, I don't think I don't think any one project has necessarily stood intensely that that makes me happy or excited. I don't see that many companies or that many organizations trying to use smart contracts from a purely structural business element. Like they're, they're trying to make tokens. They're trying to make tokens because they're trying to basically get the token to take off. And I see that as a fundamental pain point. Like I, I don't want to see more tokens. I don't want to, I, I invest in this space and I don't want to see more tokens. I want to see more actual like creative use cases for the industry themselves. Yeah. I want to see a, a law firm that, you know, that puts out legal smart contracts as it, as part of their business model, for example. And, and they've gone through the due diligence of making sure that it's legal so that when I decide to pass my money off to my kids when I die, like that there's actual secure storage of their, uh, from my wallet to their wallet and that kind of stuff. That, that's the junior use case that you see at all and you're, and you're learning the, the, the framework, but nobody actually does that as a business. And it'd be really cool to see organizations step into that role and, and do those sort of things. As well as like, you can imagine a, a, a situation where startups take existing things from the real, from the web to world and start applying it to the crypto, right? Imagine a world where you have a, a platform that you, where you can write things out, do things that aren't removable, aren't cancelable, right? You can't have a, someone ban you for, for posting to the blockchain because it's always going to be there. And so there's really fundamental, interesting things that can be done in that space. And I just don't think anyone is doing it. 
you mentioned passing things down to your kids. A good friend of mine was sort of in and around that circle at the time. And basically it was just like the thought experiment was if I freeze my body or my brain or whatever, and I get unfrozen and hundred years hence, how do I know that I'm going to have money? And a lot of the sort of discussions around that were some of these really seminal original ideas around distributed consensus and blockchain came out. So it's funny to hear you mention that, Michael, because I feel like that's both the genesis of it and continues to be part of the, the kind of incentive behind it. Yeah, I put myself in that sort of same mindset of what can you build that nobody could take away from? What can you build that nobody could? And, and I, though I agree with you on, on the discussion that you had with regards to the concept of a state government being able to come in and just destroy it and whack it on most of these coins, on most of these technologies, I do feel like there are the top of the stack, you could say, are very much anti that. They're very much like it would just take an immensurable cost. You, you can see that with China when they blocked crypto mining, you know, they, they were 70% of the market just a couple of years ago and they suddenly blocked it and said, hey, no more. And, and all of those guys are, are people that I know now here in Texas, moved their machines, moved all their equipment and they're here. And so I think there is a reality here where, where like these systems are so asynchronous that they will just hop around, they will move around, they will find a way to forego those sort of things. Let's give these technologies, let's give these folks a chance to figure this stuff out. And I think ultimately it will get regulated. The question is, will it get regulated out of existence or will it get regulated in the same way that web got regulated, in the same freedoms that we got with web two in, in section 230 and all this kind of stuff? What kind of regulations will exist within the crypto ecosystem? My mental image right now is one of a state machine that exists decentralized that will outlive any government, any particular interest of a large organization. It's, a, it's basically you switch this thing on, it lives in the CPUs around the planet, and it's a state machine that just is not going to go away or be controlled by anybody. Is that Absolutely. the dream? Yeah. Yep. That's the yes. That's it's 100%. Yep. Accurate. Yep. And, and the money is merely an incentive to keep that state machine oh, alive. Machine going. Yep. Yeah. There so, so, so when you're talking about Ether, when you're talking about miners getting Ether for running their, their calculations, for running these things, they're doing the processing of the state machine in exchange for doing the processing of the state machine. They get a little bit of kickback, right? Like they get a little bit of so, they get a, some gas fees intertwined. Yeah, to me, and so to me, that doesn't sound ridiculous, and that doesn't sound to me that would make total sense. That Web three is the how do we then create apps for this state? Exactly. So there's the conversation of oh, the viability of the blockchains and the interoperability and the can this government do? Yes, that's all at the infrastructure layer, and great. That's that's one conversation, and let those yeah. people do those things. But then I think for us as entrepreneurs, CTO types, what is what does this mean for us in the innovation cycle? It's no, you should start creating apps that it might be a bit early because the whole underlying technology is still being debated, and it, well, like you said earlier, Michael, there's still like this fight for which chain is going to what and how. There's all that, but as CTO types or as entrepreneurs or as founders, it's no, you better start thinking about 
what does the state machine mean for my users, my data, my interoperability? And now what do we do? Yeah, you can build a DAP. When you think of these platforms, when you think of these systems as your state machine, and they're living, you could say, in in a decentralized cloud, smart contracts, which are basically APIs. They're like micro APIs, right? Then you can see a world where you, know, you, can, you can build dApps that interact with these APIs in React, and, and so you and and your wallets are basically your single sign-up. Your wallets are, are your how, your SSL, how you register to these dApps. And so when you think of it in that perspective, yeah, you you can build out hugely functional websites for people to you know sign in with authenticate with their wallets, log in and do whatever it is that you're trying to do within an ecosystem that we already understand. We already understand React, we already understand front-end frameworks and so forth. And so really it's about understanding the backend, understanding the, the difficulty of just a different paradigm shift for how you do backend the systems. But I could see future social network, I mean, that Twitter CEO would not have quit his job at Twitter and completely rebranded Square to Block if it were not for the fact that there is a future in this. And, and Zuckerberg wouldn't have completely reshifted Facebook's focus if they were not feeling like this is it. This is the, the thing that they want to prioritize with Meta. And so and so there is a future here that, that I think is very powerful. And, and it's just a, a situation of creativity of how creative you can be in terms of building the backends with the paradigm of immutability, with the paradigm of not screwing it up, <laughs> essentially on the back end so that your front ends could be amazing. Like I could see an entire social network, decentralized social network uh, existing on, on platforms like this where people post their thoughts and ideas and they, they can never be removed. They can never be, be, be canceled per se. So there's a lot there, a lot of very powerful things there. And I think a lot of these technologies will give folks that, that are willing to dive into this stuff and willing to ask the uncomfortable questions of what are we missing in the current ecosystem? What do we not have in the current ecosystem? And what can we build in this new ecosystem that the current ecosystem just doesn't provide for us? Yeah, and, and getting back to your question, Etienne, does it make business sense? Because it has to make sense. As tech people, and I'm as guilty as this as anyone, I see a technology or something cool and it's, oh, let's figure out a business that lets me mess around with this technology. Like I'm sure, Anoop, in your consulting, you see this all the time. As CTOs, I love what you say, Etienne, over and over again about the CTO's job being much more expansive than just narrowly taking care of the tech. And I think this is exactly one of those spots where the CEO is almost uniquely placed to help guide the conversation because non-technical people are like, let's face it, they're probably just going to be lost, right? Hey, we got to do blockchain because of because our investor said we got to do blockchain or vice versa. Oh, blockchain sounds scary. I don't want to go near it. And I think the CTO's job is to understand both sides of it, understand enough about the tech but also about the business side of it to really make those like really good judgments about where it makes sense. Yeah. And for me, Etienne, I've always said that the CTO of today is the future CEO. And, and this is the reason why everything has gotten so complex that it's easy for a technology professional to learn the business and operations, but it is not easy for an operations person to maybe get into technology and understand the depth that we have learned over the past 10, 15, 20 years. For me, I think that this is some sort of an experiment that I want to have right now. And I'm still on the fence, like I said, because I don't know yet if I'm solving a business case very well. I can't obviously move my entire SaaS platform onto the blockchain. That would be 
that wouldn't be the right thing. But like Michael was saying, pick a small portion of that and and see if you can just log that. One of the things that I'm just thinking is, hey, logging ticket sales, for example. So we have traceability. Even if I can just do that to begin, and then I can have people verify or scan a QR code and see the ticket's lineage. I think that will be a good problem to solve. And that will be something that I can say, hey, I put my foot on the ground. We're doing something innovative. And at the same time, we're doing something that is meaningful. For that, though, I want to know, is Solana the platform of choice? Is Ethereum still the platform of choice? And how would I go from there? Yeah, that's one way yeah, I get a thousand answers from a thousand different people. Yeah, really? Like if I, okay. If, if, I, if I knew, I wouldn't be working. I think a thing that most people would probably agree with is if you have to do it now, now, Solana is probably a pretty good choice, but depending on how Optimism and the L2s and all the ZK rollup experiments that are going on in Ethereum work out, maybe long-term that ends up winning, but it's not like, it's not really that ready today. So unclear, I would say. Watch this space in the next few months. Is what so, yeah. so the benefit that you'll get from Solana over Ethereum is speed, right? Like speedy. Yeah. Solana right. is faster. It, it, they had some hiccups recently, but those seem to be out of the way. But it's really the, like the, if you're thinking of the stuff that Etienne said, where this is basically like a state machine and you're just working within the concept of the state machine, Solana is just that a faster machine to work on ETH2 and cheaper. And cheaper. Yes. ETH2 is supposed to be a huge upgrade, a huge change in it. And so I, I, I have ETH2 stakes, so I'll say that ahead of time. From a simplicity perspective, like I'm excited about it. I'm excited to see what's, what's going to happen with it. At the same time, it is a gamble. It is, and, and all of the stuff that we do in tech is a gamble, right? Whether we're going to back one technology or another technology, yeah, we're going to learn one language or other language. It reminds it, me, just it reminds me of the am I gonna build my app for Android or for iOS? Where am I gonna start? It's it sounds to me what I'm getting from this conversation is is there's a conflation of infrastructure and application happening in the Web three conversation that I think is a distraction. Let the infrastructure people be the infrastructure people. Understand that there's a state machine being built on top of the planet with CPUs as nodes, and it just seems like a natural progression. You went from a PC on a desk to a interconnected network of PCs called the internet to now interconnecting those CPUs to form one big state. So that to me is great. Have that storm in a teacup and have those people have those fights. I don't know if you should get involved in those as a CTO because... You're not involved in AWS's debates about how they're building the next service or the next thing. So you're just like, oh, great. There's now there's a something service. Great. Now I'm going to, how am I going to use that? It sounds to me, though, listening to you, Michael, that a really good way for us to have the Web3 conversation as entrepreneurs and developers and CTOs is. What can my team build with with a DAP? Like what DAPs can my teams start building? Hey, let's do a little fun Friday project or let's do a little innovation week. What? How does a DAP serve our business model? 
wow, if you build a dApp, you inherit all these things from the network. That's amazing. Or wow, running a dApp costs a billion dollars. I'm rather not going to do it. But, but it sounds to me like the dApp is the place or is is a DAP basically? It's not necessarily a smart contract. DAP is like a UI built on UI layer that the APIs and smart contracts. Okay, so if you start with a DAP saying, "Hey, I'm going to build a little something that I, a person can interact with a smart contract behind it, or whatever storage or logic is behind that," I think that's a I think that's an exciting conversation. Yeah, and I recommend people. Learn, actually use it. Get yourself a wallet. Get yourself a little wallet of some kind. You know, put stuff in it. Start using it. Play around with it. And and, and find dApps. Like when we were learning mobile web development for the first time, we didn't immediately jump in and start doing mobile development. We we bought smartphones and started using the existing apps that were coming out and started getting a feel for what the UI UX looks like. And I'll, I'll be honest, like dApps need some UI UX love for sure because... Because you're talking about finance guys building these things, like like they're not focused on, on user experience at all. At the same time, get familiar with that. Learn how the current tooling looks like. Learn learn what 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 it does. Learn buy, learn buy your stuff on DNS domain or something, or like a Solana yeah. domain, which is cheaper. You know, something yeah. super super simple. Toss some money in there. Like it, it's it takes next to no time, yeah. and at least you've now put a stake in the ground, right? Okay, yes. I know how to do a thing. <laughs> it's like a yeah. start. And- I was going to say for people that want to build these apps and, and the dApps like at the end, like you're saying, you need to decide whether you want to be at that application layer or what layer do you really want to be on? Because there is a lot of money to be made at every layer. There's, con- there's as a CTO, if you are more towards the technical, like really deep C plus kind of style coder that you may actually be able to do things at the lower layer, which are much needed right now. We're still building the infrastructure. It's not already built. So you could contribute towards a project of your liking at that layer. But if you are more of an application and a user experience kind of a person, then yes, stay away by all means from the lower layer, like you're saying, and focus on giving people a great user experience via a small dApp. So there is different layers that you could pick and there's plenty of problems to solve at each layer. There's something as simple as a coin swap, for example. That is such a big problem right now that people are solving. Something as big, uh, you know, as simple as a side chain or being able to do proof of stake algorithms. Those are like big problems that are getting solved right now and not many people are able to solve those problems. So you pick where you want to be and then there is plenty of opportunity there for CTOs. Yeah, and I think, so there's two things to say about that. I totally agree with Anoop. There's a lot of money going into the space still, a ton of it. I talked to the head of a DAO on Monday and they're like, we're 20 people, we're 21 people and we want to get to 80 by the end of the year. And they just don't know, they have all the money. They've got like hun- literally hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> Some of it is actually in US dollars too that, that they need to spend to get up to speed, to get up to that size. And they're, they're, they just can't find the people. So yep, that's true. the opportunity is out there. It's definitely out there. Yeah, that, the, it's funny. The, I think it really depends on, on wh- where your company or where your organization comes from as well. If you're used to dealing with enterprise organizations, like if you sell the enterprise and stuff like that, then, then this is all going to look like sort of crazy nonsense stuff because the enterprise customers that you have aren't necessarily going to want that. And so there's a whole other space just for enterprise side 
which is private blockchains, private, like doing this sort of stuff in the private. Granted, like I used to be a fan of Hyperledger. It's really not all that good. Like it's just basically a bunch of Docker images that you're running in, in different environments and stuff like that. And so there's a real need there. Like I think I, I was, I posted something recently where like Department of Veterans Affairs is looking for RFI information for basically building their own internal blockchain in the system. And, and, and so there is a desire within these larger enterprise organizations, these larger ecosystems to, to implement these technologies, to implement these, let these sort of techs of immutability without necessarily putting all their stuff publicly live on Ethereum or publicly live on Solana. So there is like a plethora of people that are just interested and excited in doing something in this space, but like you said, don't have the know-how, don't have the technical prowess to be able to pull it off. And so if you're willing, if your company focuses on a particular segment or a particular customer type, you should really understand what that customer wants out of a Web3 sort of technology. And it may be private. Yeah, I just talked to a company yesterday who's deploying in Hyperledger a solution for kind of COVID passports, international kind of COVID passports, that kind of thing. Like, it's a perfectly sensible idea. Thank you so much to Augustine, Michael, Anup. Please check out 7CTOs.com. We are fanatical about CTOs and the work that they're doing and radically supporting them on their way to building their startups. Subscribe on podcast platform of your choice and send me an email. Tell me how you're doing. Talk to you soon. Maybe next week. Cheers. Cheers.